I don't normally go all Perry Mason or Rumple of the Bailey on you, and I don't normally cover court cases, but today's case comes from Rotherham in Northern England, circa 1950, and just shows how far, for the majority of the population, are prejudices, opinions, and indeed wording in society and law courts has changed in 70 years. The court's trial's use of wording, and especially the supposedly impartial judge, will appall you in what really should have been a straightforward case of murder. This is the Rotherham transvestite case. Hi and welcome back to the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. Magnus Hitchfeld was a German physician and sexologist who worked in the Weimar Berlin in the early 20th century. He was an advocate for sexual minorities and he also coined the word transvestite from the Latin trans meaning a cross and vestitus meaning dressed. The word transvestite now has a stigma due to its historic usage as a label to diagnose mental health disorder. Cross-dressing is now the politically correct word, but for the purposes of today's episode, we'll stay with mid-20th century language. Normally when I find cases, I can then find lots of sources online and piece together a good episode, but it wasn't the case with this episode, and it is to Margaret Drinkhall's Rotherham Murders book that today's case is pretty much the only source I could find, and I'm just going to read it verbatim. Frank James, a bus inspector, was going to work at 4am on the 1st of August 1950, when he saw what he thought was a woman lying on the pavement. As he got closer, he could see a wig had fallen off and it was, in fact, a man. The man's face was bruised and bloody and he was lying face down. James went to the telephone kiosk in Lodsdale Road and rang the police. Inspector Whitley arrived and met the man at the kiosk and both went to see the body a short distance away. The body was lying face down in a pool of blood. Such was the ferocity of the attack, there were splashes of blood up to 11 feet away. The man's dentures were broken into three pieces and had fallen near his head. He was wearing a green and white dress and a brown swagger coat, a green felt beret and a man's sports shorts, green woolen gloves brown silk stockings, a neck scarf, white high-heeled canvas shoes, 
in a dark handbag with a zipper. He had no identification on him. The police issued a description and asked if anyone could recognise him or the clothing would come forward. The body was taken to the mortuary at Dalton. When Inspector Whiteley helped the pathologist to undress the body, they found a brassiere stuffed with salt. At 2pm, a young man entered the police station at Dalton and gave himself up as the killer of the unknown man. He made a statement telling the police the events of the previous evening. The man's name was Patrick Cooney. 18 months earlier, he'd come from Scotland to Rotherham to work in the mines. He was aged 25 and the previous night had gone to the Dalton Top Club where he met a friend, Reg Kelsall. They had a few drinks, played a few games of snooker. On leaving the pub around 11pm, he, Reg and Jim Wood, the brother of his girlfriend, went to Wood's house and had some supper. Patrick then left alone to go home to his lodgings in Arundel Avenue. He'd almost reached home when he saw a woman standing on her own and shouted, Good night, love. She replied, Just a minute. He went back to her and she told him she had arranged to meet someone called Jim who had stood her up. So he agreed to see her home. He put his arm through hers and they walked towards Dalton Brook. When they got to a circle of grass, he asked her to sit down with him for a while, but she pulled away saying, Come on, come on. Coney put his arms around her and kissed her, and she didn't resist. He pulled her closer to him, and he told the police, I felt something was wrong. At that point, he knew that she was in fact a man. Could he continued with his statement, telling the police he turned to walk away from her and he felt her pulling at his shoulders saying, don't go, it'll be alright. He described being so angry and disgusted at himself that he lost control and punched the man several times in the face to teach him a lesson. The man fell to the ground, his wig fell off and Cooney saw a bald patch on the top of his head. He then sat astride him, punching and punching at his face and body. He had admitted being angry and disgusted that he'd fallen for the idea that this was a man and not a woman. The man didn't speak during the attack and Cooney, still furious, turned him over and smashed his face against the pavement as he did so. Then Cooney got up and ran all the way back to his lodgings where he went upstairs to bed. He shared a room with a man called Thomas Lynch, who was awake when Cooney got home. He told Lynch what had happened, stating he had met a woman who had whistled after him and he'd taken her for a walk. When he put his arms around her, he realised that she was a man and admitted to Lynch that he'd punched him once or twice. The following morning, both Cooney and Lynch were up and out for work at 5.45am to start their shift at the pit. When Cooney's shift had finished, 
He came up to the surface to find other miners laughing at the fact that a body had been found at Dalton Brook, dressed in a woman's clothing, and he knew immediately it was the man he'd attacked the previous night. He waited for Lynch to come up to the surface and told him what happened, and he was going to have to give himself up. He asked Lynch to go with him to the Dalton Police Station. Without going back to his lodgings, he went straight to the station at 2.10pm and said, It's me you want. I did it. Bursting into tears. Cooney was charged with the murder of an unknown man. Whilst inquiries were being made to the identity of the deceased man, who was aged about 37 years of age, a post-mortem was held by Dr E. Price of Leeds, consultant pathologist. He noted that the face was entirely covered in blood, but underneath he saw rouge, face powder and lipstick. The man had two black eyes, a broken nose, fractures of the upper and lower jaws, laceration in the left corner of the mouth and on his neck was bruising consistent with the use of fingertips. There was hemorrhaging beneath the structure of the voice box in the gullet. The heart and the lungs showed signs of asphyxia and there were many abrasions on the wrist. He told the court later that he also found evidence that the man was a sexual pervert. This was not explained in the newspaper of the period as it was too delicate, but it probably means that he'd recognised the evidence of anal penetration. Meanwhile, the wife of the dead man had identified the body. She told the police that it was her husband, Kenneth Charles Crow, a woodwork teacher at Rotherham Grammar School. They had two daughters, aged 11 and 13. Mrs Crow could not explain how he came to be wearing her clothes. She'd never known him to wear her clothes before, or even go out at night. His body had been found just a short distance from Hounsfield Road where they lived. It appears that on the night of the 31st of July, 1st of August, Crow had seen his wife and two girls leave the house about 8pm and was later seen in the garden by a neighbour watering some flowers. He appeared to be quite normal and chatted animatedly to the neighbour, saying he was going to have a quiet night in. Later that evening, a woman was seen walking up and down the street at the junction of Norwood Street and Doncaster Road, Dalton. A witness, Frederick Snowden, was talking to some friends on Dalton Road between 10.45pm and 11.30pm and noticed a woman walking up and down as she passed them several times. He didn't think of it as anything unusual, just a girl waiting for someone she'd planned to meet. Cooney was brought into the West Riding Police Station on Wednesday the 3rd of August. He was smartly dressed in a fawn jacket and brown trousers. He appeared to be slightly nervous but composed. The prosecutor, Mr E.C. Jones, started proceedings by saying, It is obvious from the evidence that this man was a sexual pervert. 
Mrs. Crow appeared as the first witness, stating that she'd identified the man as being her husband. The clothes that the deceased had been wearing were shown to her, and she identified them as being her own, apart from the gloves which belonged to her daughter. She told the court that on the evening of the 31st of July, she'd gone to Dinnington for the night and taken her daughters with her. She had made arrangements to see her husband the following day. Mrs Crow had reported her husband as missing when he had not arrived at the appointed time. When shown the body, she recognised him, but was very shocked at seeing him in her very own clothes. The handbag was also hers, and when she was shown it, she saw that inside was a piece of rope that appeared to be her daughter's skipping rope. Mrs Crow told the police she'd never seen the wig before. She was also shown some drawings of herself and her husband tied to a chair. These had been drawn by her husband and had been in his possession the night he had died. Friends of Cooney appeared and gave testament to the man's character. He was known as a good worker, one of the best, according to Reg Kelsall, who had known him for a long time. He told the court that Cooney had made a lot of friends at the pit where he worked. His other friend, Lynch, told the court that Cooney had no idea he'd killed the man dressed as a woman, and when he heard that a dead body had been dressed in woman's clothing, he went white. Evidence was heard from other witnesses, but the jury had no option but to send Cooney for trial at the Assizes, where he appeared on the 25th of November, 1950, in front of the judge, Mr Fenimore. Richard Green appeared for the defence and Mr H.R.B. Shepherd for the prosecution. Cooney's aunt, who'd come down from Ayr for the trial, told the judge that she was his only living relative as Cooney had lost both parents when he was young and he was brought up by his grandmother in Scotland. Testimony revealed that Cooney had some experience in the boxing ring and was very strong. When Cooney gave his evidence, he described blow for blow the attack on Crow. The only part he could not distinctly remember was putting his hands around Crow's throat. Dr Price listed the man's injuries and stated that after beating him, Cooney had turned the body over and smashed the deceased's face into the ground. The reason Cooney gave for this, that he wanted to teach him a lesson and to make sure that he did not go out dressed like that again. Dr Price revealed that the cause of the death was strangulation, accelerated by shock caused by the fracture of the upper and lower jaw. He stated once more that evidence from the post-mortem showed that Crow was a sexual pervert and he was, in fact, a habitual addict of a certain form of perversion. Mr Green pointed out to the jury that everyone who knew Cooney had given him a good character and he'd never had a history of violence before. He stated that he'd been provoked by his discovery and had been unable to control himself in an attack that was very out of character. He had not any intention to murder anyone, 
and intention had to be present for the crime to be one of murder. He then said, It could be said that by dressing up in women's clothes, it could be sufficient grounds for reducing the charge from murder to manslaughter. Green asked the court, Is he to be blamed for hitting out? A man may surely defend himself from the importuning of a homosexual. Mr Shepherd asked Cooney if Crow had been violent towards him or had tried to defend himself from the attack. Cooney admitted he hadn't. He pointed out to the jury that Cooney had walked away from the man, knowing at the very least he was very severely injured. Even if he didn't intend to murder him, the intention was to inflict grievous bodily harm. Furthermore, when Crow fell on his back, he was in no position to defend himself from a fit young man. The judge told the jury they had to decide whether this was a case of murder or manslaughter. He said, You should not be put off by disgust at the behaviour of Crow unless you somehow thought it was relevant to the case. The jury retired for two hours and when they returned, the foreman told the court that they found the prisoner guilty of manslaughter. The judge sentenced Cooney for five years, saying to him, You did not intend to murder Crow, and it might be proper to say that the attack was justified. You are a man of good character and well thought of by your peers. Crow was a man of education who, in the course of his profession, was put in charge of boys. What it was that that creature was up to on the night of the 31st of July may never be realised. What tricks was he seeking to play on some innocent passerby? It is a thousand pities that the accused man had the dreadful misfortune to be accosted by the deceased. This damning summing up emphasises the disgust felt at the time for people who did not fit into the sexual behaviour which should be expected by society. The judge in his speech almost apologises for sending Cooney to prison for this vicious attack. Indeed, the blood spatter being so far away indicated the ferocity of this one-sided assault. Homophobia is prevalent throughout this case as is indicated by the comments made by professional people. What we have to bear in mind is that men could be imprisoned for having relations with another man during this period and to be a transvestite was not understood at all. Homosexuality only became decriminalised in Britain in 1967. Certainly, there was no doubt that Cooney was well thought of by his friends. After his sentence, the court were told that his friends had paid for his defence, even though he would have been entitled to legal aid. At the time of his sentence, £200 had been collected from, from concerts and subscriptions led by Jim Wood, and it was reported that his friends had gone to the Assizes in a bus to support their former work colleague. Nevertheless, in our much more enlightened world, the battering which led to the murder 
was a vicious crime on a man unable to defend himself from a fit and stronger younger man. Well, that's it for another episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast and certainly a thought-provoking episode. And, till next time, bye-bye.